This will be a treat for you electronic music fans. Writer, producer, and performer Reese Fulber is coming on the show in just a few moments. You will love this conversation. He's a truly international musical star who was born in Vancouver of a German father and a mother from Great Britain. Reese grew up with the sounds of Led Zeppelin, Kraftwerk, and the local punk rockers blasting from his father's recording studio. And at the age of 13, he began drumming, sometimes gigging with his dad, and he was always in the studio. In 1984, he became interested in electronic music, and once he got his first synthesizer, life changed for him. He became friends with Bill Lieb, who had just left Skinny Puppy, and Reese's early adventures included collaborations with not just Lieb, but Frontline Assembly, and eventually tours with that group, as well as Delirium, well into the late 90s. It was so much fun talking with him, and I found him to be quite understated when it comes to talking about himself. He just mentions the time that Sarah McLaughlin dropped in on him and liked what she heard. They ended up collaborating, and a few years later, he worked with Sinead O'Connor. He's been with quite a few of the greats. And of course, we talk about gear. We always have to talk about gear. He uses some very interesting setup to create his electronic music when he's on tour, and I think you'll find it fascinating. But before we begin, I want to share some wonderful news with all of you. Our friends from LumaTouch were recently awarded Best Video Editing App for 2021 on Apple's App Store. They have been on our radar for a few years now, and I've interviewed co-founder Terry Morgan a couple of times. You can go to owcradio.com and search for LumaFusion and LumaTouch, and you'll find those conversations. Co-founder Chris Demura sent this message to all of you, and I couldn't agree more with what he has to say. Hi, OWC. This is Chris Demaris with LumaTouch. We are so excited and honored that our mobile video editor, LumaFusion, is the recipient of Apple's iPad App of the Year for 2021. It feels great to know that our small team has created an app that democratizes video editing and makes it possible for people around the world to edit meaningful video stories for work, family, and fun, and share their stories with others worldwide. That is so true. Let's put this into perspective. According to Statista, as of August 31st of 2021, there were over 3.7 million non-gaming apps available in the App Store. And since June of 2017, over 180 billion apps have been downloaded from that same store. So this award, according to Tim Cook, who's Apple CEO, goes to, and I quote Tim, standout developers who innovate with Apple technology. Cook says that these developers are sparking the creativity and passion of millions of users around the world. So heartfelt congratulations to Chris, Terry, and the entire LumaFusion team. And now, stay tuned. Reese Fulber is up next. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. Thanks for doing this. Reese, welcome aboard. This is very exciting. I know you were having trouble getting out of Canada the last time we were trying to schedule this. You travel all the time. And I think uh, with COVID, you had some paperwork issues at the border or something. And we got delayed. Travel has only started recently. And just like you're never sure exactly what 
the status of everything is. I drove across the U.S. border and then I went and got a COVID test. And then I get to the border and they like, we don't need one when you drive. But when you fly, you need one. And then to enter Canada, you need a PCR test, which is the more expensive, more time consuming test. And you incur like a fair amount of extra expense with all of this stuff. You know, I go down there and play a couple little shows and I think I'm breaking even after all that. Crazy because they're like a friend of mine who just got back from Germany told me they were charging $150 for each test. You can buy home kits in Germany, a rapid antigen test, and they're super cheap. They're like about one euro each and they're like $30 each in Canada. They're $90 here. They're one euro at the supermarket in Germany. (laughs) And will the airlines take that test? They'll take it? In the European Union, they usually just want the vaccination, full vaccination. The tests are only needed, I think, when you fly into Canada, as far as I know, or flying from Canada into the U.S., But when I flew to Germany, I just needed full vaccination. And if you don't have full vaccination, then you need the negative test. So and then when I got over there, I had to get my British Columbia QR code converted into a European Union code. So you have to go to a pharmacy to do that. And then they print you out a European QR code. Then you put that in another app and then you can go out and you know, go to bars and restaurants and whatever. So well, at least things are open. I know that all my friends in Berlin were really complaining for a while. They couldn't go anywhere. I mean, Berlin feels other than masks on the trains and in the supermarket, it feels pretty close. I mean, it's not that different. So talk to me about your performance is the one you just came back from. Was that at the club called Her? No, that's actually a streaming thing. This guy and us, I think it's his girlfriend, they have it. It's, it's real, very Berlin experience. They're sort of set up in what appears to be a mostly abandoned building with this little room. And it's just a streaming show. And they have mostly DJs going there. I mean, some of them have been viewed like a million times by bigger DJs. And, and they just have stuff every day, every evening. And they just do like a live stream show from this little tile room they set up. And I just went in there and did that. And uh, I mean, it's good exposure. It gets you exposed to that crowd. So, you know, it's a younger crowd than what I'm used to. So it was uh, great. I did, you know, my electronic live setup and and most people are DJing. There's a few people that kind of do something like what I did, but uh, there's not many. And it was really fun. It was, uh, it was great. You know, then I played live the next night, which was a little different it was more of a concert setting so the way i've configured my setup is uh i can kind of go with what the night is i sort of never have a set list i have a piece of paper that tells me where all the elements of different tracks are and then i kind of put them together you know like in sweden i did something had a little more melody and like arpeggios and things because a swedish crowd really love like synth pop and that kind of music so i tried to do it a little more like that. And so the Berlin set, I'd make a little harder, a little more techno. So I got rid of the computer for playing live now. Really? Yeah. I use a different machine that's, there is a type of computer in there, but it just feels more performance oriented. Because when you have a computer, sometimes you end up kind of hovering it over a little too much. And I think it opens it up. I mean, live is a funny word for electronic music. It is a different form of live, but I think what it is, is you're manipulating the structure of compositions. So 
it's as live as electronic music can be, even though you're not playing keyboards, you're creating the arrangement and the composition. And uh, I really enjoy it. It's really fun. And, you know, sometimes it's not perfect. So I may I make mistakes and then I have to figure out how I'm digging myself out of it. But it's fun. It adds to the excitement of it, for sure. Well, you started talking about your equipment. Let's geek out for a minute. Can you tell me when you're performing, describe the room to you? Because some people will not be watching this. They'll be listening to it. I know a lot of people want to know about equipment. They always ask. Before, I used to use my uh, laptop that uh, would have been long dead if it wasn't for OWC and all the stuff I got from them, like the solid state drive and the RAM and it made my old computer happening again. I used to do something similar to what I do now, but with a computer where I would have a, an interface where I could recall different clips. But I just found that with this box I use, it's called an uh, Electron Octatrack. I guess the difference is when you have the computer, you're sort of highlighting elements. And with this box, you can highlight elements and then reach in and pull the wires around. I think that's the best way to describe it. You have more immediate control the computer, you need like a gigantic interface with it. It's just a different experience. This way, it just feels more like you're playing a musical instrument a little bit. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds more like an instrument. Yeah. And then I have like some other different synthesizers and sound manipulation devices. So I'm sending MIDI sequences to these and then manipulating the sounds as I go on the other synthesizer boxes and things like that. So, you know, that's never the same. It's different every time. Someone actually asked me about the set list in Sweden, and I can't remember. It's in my head. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I much prefer that because, you know, I was in a band called Frontline Assembly, which was like, you know, we're kind of the that first wave of industrial, industrial rock in North America. And that's more like a band. You know, we had like a drummer. We had a guitar player. I played keyboards. Our songs had set arrangements. You know, it, it's almost more traditional in a way. I still go out with that band occasionally, but I felt like it's just something different. I mean, I like the idea of never knowing where I'm going to go. It's like inspiring. And I mean, it's fun the other way too. It's just different. You know, you're playing songs much like a rock band would. So when you first started, it's almost like riffing, right? It's like whatever comes into your head, you're doing it. Were you nervous at first when you first started? Or I mean, you grew up with music. Your father was a musician. I don't really get that nervous anymore. I also rehearse a fair bit before I do it. So I make notes, which is something I didn't do when I was younger. And now that I'm older, I make notes. Notes are important because if I didn't have notes, I think I would be way more nervous. But I have notes, so if I get confused, I can figure out where to go. I don't know. I've been playing music. I started with playing in the school jazz band. It's like when I'm 14 and you're already playing concerts then and stuff. So I don't know. I'm just kind of used to it, I guess. I mean, you get nervous sometimes, but it's it's like a good nervous energy. It's like an excitement nervous, yeah. like a paralyzed with fear nervous <laughs> it's, it's more like the anticipation nervous and i haven't had that many bad experiences on stage it's usually always something good i mean you have the odd horror story but in general there's there's not very many well you're so good people just love your music and i i watched the stream from berlin and you're in that red room the red booth well it's normally not red the other people brought in a red light for our performances it's normally like lit up like a drugstore in there so uh, <laughs> i kind of liked it and you're standing up you're dancing you're just rocking out with music it was really fun to watch yeah i get into it and i sort of forget about everything else 
because I look back at some of the clips and I'm making some sort of odd gestures because I'm not really thinking about being watched. I'm just kind of in it. And uh, I think that's a good way to be. It is. And I think people can tell when you're acting or pretending, they can feel the energy when you're really in it. And you're obviously really in it. I had fun watching. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. to. I really enjoyed it. Now you threw some German dialogue in the end there, and I couldn't quite understand what you were saying. <laughs> uh, it's from a film. It's from a film from the 70s. Oh, there you go. Art okay, film. well, I'm not going to I'm not going to get into details, but it's, yeah, uh, I'm not going to ask you because it's Berlin. You have to be careful what you ask. About and it. it's, it's, it's well known to people that like art house cinema. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, there you go. OK, well, I'm going to listen again and see if I can pick up on what it was. You know, my laptop, which is in the other room right now, I also put a new SSD in and revved it up because it was about to die. Oh, mine was too. And like I tell a lot of other people I know and they're having computer problems, I go, this is what you need to do. And I did it all myself. I mean, I'm, yeah, not, me I'm not huge tech. I'm not like someone that builds electronic things, but the way they all set it up for you and explain it and you go to the website, it's really easy. It's demystifying and you just open it up and but I think they changed the new computers. I think they've made them harder to do those kind of things on. And it's almost like it's, I don't want to say they're planning obsolescence and stuff, but it, <laughs> they are. They make everything to fail now. They don't build things to last forever like I think they used to. Well, thank heavens for OWC because on those machines that you can, I call it retrofitting, but I put a new SSD in mine too because I needed more room. The old drive was getting old and it was so easy to do. Do you use any of their other equipment, any drives or anything? Or I use the drives. The drives I use almost exclusively because I know they're just reliable. And yeah. And I remember years ago, I think somebody, yeah, I was just buying like whatever drives and someone's like, you, you know, you got to get pro spec drives. I mean, years ago, you needed to do more so because of the earlier formats and there'd be, you needed a chipset so it would be fast enough for audio. I had something go wrong with one of them and they just replaced it immediately. I didn't lose anything because I back up. Yeah. I use a lot of their drives and out of all of my drives, I've only had one that using SoftRate, it told me it was about to go. So I called OWC yeah. and they sent another drive out right away and then I replaced it. Yeah, they literally overnighted me a drive. So I'm really curious because you really are very talented. I'm I'm uh, Derek over at OWC is the one who suggested that I interview you and he loves your music and I started listening to it. Your father was a musician, and did I read somewhere he was like in the punk rock scene, right? Yeah, I grew up around the punk rock scene in Vancouver. And my father had a recording studio where, you know, a lot of those bands would record. I think the most famous guy to come through that studio would have been Duff from Guns N' Roses before he was in Guns N' Roses. He was a young punk rocker, and he was up in Vancouver from Seattle a lot. And so when I was like 10 years old, that's what I used to hang around the studio. I mean, I've always been around it and I was already playing drums by that time. And I think when I was 12, I think I even like filled in some rehearsals for some punk band my dad was involved with. So did you study music or did you learn by doing it? I mean, I learned by doing it, but I was serious about drums when I was younger. Like, you know, I took jazz lessons. I, I could read, you know, charts for drums and, and I was in the jazz band at school. And for a while there, I was pretty serious about playing drums. And then I think it was around the time I was about 13, I got really hooked onto electronic music. 
I mean, I knew about electronic music already because my parents took me to see Kraftwerk when I was like five years old. My father's from Düsseldorf, Germany, which is the same city they're from. And when I was little, we lived in Germany. So my dad was aware of all those sort of avant-garde groups over there. And I guess they came through Vancouver in the mid seventies and my parents went and took me and I was my first concert memory. And it's pretty lucky that it's that it's sort of hard to believe for some people that that (laughs) first concert memory, but it is. And it always sort of stuck in my brain a little bit. And I think when I was 13, I really got hooked into electronic music. And I used to play accordion when I was younger. So I had a little bit of keyboard training. Really? Yeah, really. My mother played accordion. Yeah, I played accordion when I was a kid. But then I got really into drums. And then suddenly electronic music just took over. And I kind of started playing drums less and started playing with synthesizers more. And then my dad got me a synthesizer, I think, by the time I think I was 14. And then that was it. Then that was all I did. And And I remember I got a songbook because back in those days, you could buy songbooks from popular records. And it was a group called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. And they had a songbook of their architecture and morality album. And that's kind of how I learned how to play synth and keyboard parts. You know, I could still read music from being a school band at that time. You know, I remember I played in a band with some guys a little older than me, like, I guess, like an alternative type band. But even then I had, I would have my synthesizer and mess around with it. And I just started playing less and less drums and more and more with the other stuff. And then, then it just started becoming all I did. And then I met Bill Lieb, who was in a band called Skinny Puppy. And then we started messing around that turned into Frontline Assembly later. And by the time I was 18, I was on the road with a Frontline Assembly in Europe and, and on my way to being a, um, I guess you could say a professional, because I would say, I think by the time I was about 19 or 20, somewhere around there, I, I made my living off music. I used to work at a Starbucks before then, and then do music after work. And then it didn't last that long. I think it was about a year. And you know, I should have kept that job because they used to talk about stock options because Starbucks was a really small company. There was only like 15 stores back then, like three in Vancouver and like you know, 11 or something in Seattle. And I think there was one in Chicago and it was a pretty small company and I should have kept the job. I didn't know they gave the employees stock options back then. That's pretty cool. I worked at Starbucks when it was like a really new small company and they sent us down to Seattle for training and everything. And we went to like the company party and there was maybe 150 people there. Everybody, what's his name? Howard. He's the CEO. And back then he was, he was like the boss. He was at the party and it, it was weird. I, I wouldn't have never saw that coming. <laughs> well, you were pretty young to be touring around Europe. How was that? How, how did that work for you? It was amazing. When you do stuff that young, you end up kind of taking it for granted a little bit, you know, because it's like, that's already your life. I mean, I look back on those times and, and think I took it for granted a little bit. I didn't fully appreciate it maybe as much as I should have, because I was like barely out of high school, really. And then you're doing that. And so you sort of take it for granted a little bit when everything happens that early. You need the trajectory and then the part where it dips down. Then you start appreciating it and then you kind of work it back up. But it's great memories, isn't it? It was amazing. I mean, we went to um, Yugoslavia when it was still a country and we played West Berlin. So we went and saw the Berlin Wall and it was amazing. It was an incredible time. And then I still went back to Starbucks after that. Then we did an American tour or 
something. And then I can't remember. There was something where I just didn't go back. I think the first time I got a publishing advance or something, then it was like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> so I never went back to my job. So now are you still traveling a lot? Because you've been like Amsterdam, London, Berlin, all over Yugoslavia. Well, I used to spend a lot of time in London in the early 90s when our record company and the guy who was sort of our de facto manager was there. So we would spend a lot of time there. And even when we weren't on tour, I'd be there a lot. And I was leaning towards that being home. But just for the band, I needed to stay in Vancouver. And then down the road a little bit, I ended up in Amsterdam for a few years just because I really wanted to live in Europe. And I set up a little studio. And, and then what happened is I got hooked up with a company called Zomba who did publishing. And then they also had the, all the boy bands like uh, Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears. And they had a bit of everything. They had alternative bands. And I got involved with that company. And they also had a film composer division. And and I had done the Delirium and the other Conjure One stuff, which is a little filmic. And they brought me in. And so for a minute there, that was going to be what I was moving into. And that's what brought me into Los Angeles. But then I ended up staying in Los Angeles for you know, about 15 years. Now you're in Canada. Talk to me about uh, Delirium Silence and what went into that. I mean, we had the Delirium Project to be like this soft side of what Bill and I did with Frontline. And, and we started moving into like almost a ambient pop with female vocal type thing. It was just a sound we wanted to explore that we couldn't do in our other bands. So we got involved with a, a Vancouver record company called Network, which you know we knew because we live in the same city and everything. And they, of course, developed Sarah McLaughlin and all of that. So we made a record for them and it just started getting played. It started getting video play. It started getting radio play. And then it sort of organically started happening. And so when we made the follow-up record for Network, you know, we made it a little more new agey without really knowing that's what we were doing. And then we had an instrumental piece that Sarah McLaughlin sort of just came down and threw a vocal on. And initially, the record company's like, we're going to get Sarah to sing on a song. But then she was like, oh, I don't know. I can't come up with anything. I don't know. So then we're like at the studio finishing the record. And we're just like, well, I guess I guess it's not going to happen. So we're just going to finish the song as an instrumental like we originally had it and then sarah suddenly shows up at the studio and says hey i got some and we recorded it really quickly and then you know we just finished the record with that song that wasn't even the first single or anything and then i think what happened was you know we had the rave culture in the early 90s sort of by the late 90s dance music started becoming like a legitimate genre and force in mainstream music so the record company wanted to commission kind of a house, progressive house mix, I guess you could say, of that song. And then all of a sudden, it just really caught on with a lot of different people. And so then we're like, OK, we need some different mixes. And that's where the Tiesto one came. And Tiesto was still pretty early in his career. And I mean, it was very organic, almost random. It wasn't planned. It wasn't like we made that song in the studio. and We're like, oh, this is the one. It wasn't like that at all. It was just another track on the album. It got remixed and then it just took off and it's still going. It's still sort of like one of my main sources of livelihood. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just one of those things. And it's, it's that serendipity, that element of art that is great, where it just, just happened. And 
you know, I started working as a producer kind of before that with rock and metal bands and all kinds of different styles. And, you know, when you're working as a producer, especially for bigger record companies, they always want the song, you know, to drive sales and to get on the radio. And if you're conscious of that, it usually doesn't work. It sort of has to just happen on its own. I did another song with my Conjure One project called Tears in the Moon that we got Sinead to do. That one was more of the conscious effort because I was working with some songwriters in LA and they had played me this song and they were like, what do you think about this? And I go, I think it's a nice song. And they go, what, what do you think about doing a version of this? And I go, I think that would be cool. And then the other guy, Billy Steinberg was his name. You know, he wrote like True Colors and Like a Virgin. And Rick Knowles was also involved who wrote the music and Rick has produced Dido and Lana Del Rey and they're heavyweight guys. And I was in their orbit for a little while in Los Angeles. And so they suggested this song. And then Billy, I think was the one who said, what about Sinead O'Connor doing vocals? And I was just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let me think for a minute. <laughs> and they kind of put it all in motion. And so that was a more conscious thing than silence was. And, you know, it did all right. It got used on a mineral water commercial in Eastern Europe, which was pretty good. The difference, that was a little more calculated. And I like the record. I'm proud of the record, but it's not quite the same as when it's organic and just grows on its own. You can't beat that. Flows, right? It just comes from a very special place. Yeah, those are sort of like my two experiences with two different approaches to get into similar areas. So it's exciting when you can do what you love, what you're doing and make a good living at it and travel and do it with people you like. I mean, you've been with Frontline for a long time. You know, me and Bill, we know each other. I've known him since I was like 16, you know, and it's like you, you kind of grow up together and it's like becomes like a family type thing. And I mean, a lot of bands and a lot of artists, they get wrapped up in a lot of petty things, you know, hold people back. And you have to look at it like a family and it's like you have ups and downs. You don't always get along, but you still have to respect each other and circle back. Because, you know, I've worked with bands that just get wrapped up in so much petty bitterness and grudges and you like peel the onion and it ends up being about something where you're like, really? It's not worth it. And it's very common, especially with a lot of rock bands out there. They get really wrapped up in a lot of stuff people let go. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of them that just don't like each other anymore. You know, it's sad. You don't pick who you make good music with. And sometimes that person is not even someone that you're going to agree with or even like for that matter. But I think you have to try and put the art first. I don't like this person, but for whatever reason, we make it happen together. And but a lot of people struggle with that because, you know, you, I think ultimately some people want to have a good time. They don't want to struggle to work on something, which I also understand. So I understand both sides of it. It's so nice to talk to somebody who loves what they do. You know, it's why I do the show, to find people who are creative, who understand the tech, of course. Well, it's also a lot of work. You know, I have people say, hey, my son wants to play music, you know, and I'm like, well, you have to love it anyway, and you have to do it anyway. There's no recipe. You just have to do it. Like, I would be doing this anyway. And you have to take it seriously, and you have to work hard, and it's a long road. It's not quick. There's no real recipe other than dedication and always trying to be better. But it is a lot of work. Some people, I don't think they understand it's a full-time thing. It's, it's more full-time than a full-time job because 
full-time jobs, you, you are usually eight hours and you're done, right? A lot of this kind of stuff is just, it's never done. Even when I was producing a lot, which is more of a job, but it's still a really all-encompassing job. You know, you're going to have the artist call you at two in the morning with questions, you know, it's still all in. That's the thing about music is a real all-in lifestyle. And then on top of that, you have to maintain, especially when you're on the road and stuff, you have to find a way to maintain the other things that come around the music business and show business in general. And that's part of learning how to be professional is, you know, keeping yourself in check, not drinking. You got to be together. Everywhere you go, there's just free alcohol everywhere. And, you know, when you're a young kid, of course, that's the time to do it. Get out of your system. And then when you get older, it's like, all right, now we got to work and you got to stay on top of all that other stuff. And sex, drugs and rock and roll (laughs) is not that healthy. No, it's not. I mean, honestly, there's time and place for having fun. And you can do, I think you can do anything you want once or twice a year, really. But you got to take care of yourself because taking care of yourself physically is also taking care of yourself mentally. Because I, I find with all of that stuff, it's it's more mental than physical. And the mental part is, is gets really difficult sometimes. When you traveled to Berlin, how much equipment did you take with you? Or do you have stuff there since you had a studio there? No, I don't have a studio there. I have my cousin's closet with some of my junk. (laughs) Okay, we'll call it your cousin's studio. (laughs) Everything you saw on that stream is what I had. I had in my luggage. I just put it in my luggage. I used to have this other road case, but I pared down my setup. I have one little kind of road case I carry on the plane with me. And then everything else fits in like one roller bag. And I bring a week and a half worth of clothes and do laundry. (laughs) And do you get dinged for extra fees though? Because I think in international, it's 12 and a half kilos. Are you under that? I used to, but now I've I've been been like refining it down and paring it down. So it's really tight now. You know what I started doing? I started shoving hard drives into my coats. <laughs> I have a bunch of stuff in my backpack. And I'm also, I also got really into photography the last year or so. So I always bring like a, a camera or two with me. So I have that in my backpack. After all these years, I have it really compact. I'm always working on how can I make this more compact? I think I got it. My cousins, I have like a couple pairs of shoes, comfortable shoes for all the walking and stuff. So I have a couple things, but. And a bunch of cables. Cables take up a lot of space. So I have a lot of cables over there. So I don't have to carry those around. I've refined it. I bubble wrap so everything's secure. So nothing oops, so nothing gets broken. Cause I, you know, you're never, you can never be too sure how baggage gets handled. So anything fragile is all bubble wrapped up. I've never had a problem. I was okay going back and forth to Berlin, but like going to South Africa, I learned I couldn't leave anything in my checked luggage that like batteries or lights or anything would all get stolen. Um, and I, I remember traveling over there to, to do a job and I was traveling with the UN and Danny Glover and I had all my extra batteries in the check you know, the, the bag that I checked. And when I got to the other end, they were gone. Where do you get batteries in Johannesburg, South Africa? Wasn't that easy for Canon cameras back then? No, it was, it was tough. And then everywhere I went back there, I had to have an, a, an armed security guard with me. If I had my cameras with me. Yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah. But Berlin, the dance scene, the electronic music scene and the people in Berlin Whoa, I was getting homesick watching your stream. Berlin is sort of like 
the Los Angeles of Europe now because most of the people there are not from Germany. They're from other places. And it's sort of like the artistic destination. There are people from all over that side of the world. If they have any type of artistic agenda, a lot of people gravitate towards that city and, and try and make it happen. There's a lot of hidden clubs in Berlin, too. Oh, yeah. Only the locals know about because they try to get away from the tourists. There's a lot going on there. You know, even like a friend of mine came over from London and, and he was telling me about all these exhibitions and all this. There's, there's always really interesting things. We went and looked at a couple art exhibitions in the, uh, the Museum Island there which is a pretty grand place, actually, where they've kind of restored all those old buildings. And I love the city, not just for the artistic and music scene, but just for everything. There's, there's other things there. It's just there's always, there's always something to see and do there. I really never get tired of it. What's next for you? What, what's on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Um, I've never been to South America. Um, I was supposed to play in Colombia before COVID. I was supposed to play in Tbilisi, Georgia. Those are things I was really looking forward to. I've never been to Asia. I mean, there's still a lot of places I haven't been to. And it's always nice if you can go and play music there because then it's like justified vacation, I guess you could say. So I would love to play music in anywhere I haven't been, say a country like Georgia or Colombia or Korea or Japan. There's still China. I've had friends that have gone to all those places. I've been to Australia. I would love to go there again, maybe stay for longer than three days. <laughs> yeah, there's there's still a lot, a lot of places I'd like to go and, and see. The world feels much smaller than it did when I was 18, but there's still a lot of it I'd like to go to. Yeah, well, you will. I hope it's going to get easier to travel. I miss it. I think it is. I mean, honestly, I don't feel uncomfortable. I was a little concerned about how this would be, but I think we're over the big hump. And I think we're on the backside of it now, but I think you just have to be sensible about things. And I was a little freaked out at first because everything was so unknown and, you know, I have a son and I wanted him to be safe and everything. And, but I think I'm kind of over that initial hump. And I had a friend in Los Angeles who's an emergency room doctor and he sort of would be giving me advice on certain things. And I mean, even at the beginning, he sort of was like, look at the odds are going to be in your favor. But still, just be aware and be cautious. So I had a friend in the UK that got really ill, and that always freaks you out a little bit because they're a little random sometimes. But I'm at the point now where it's like you can navigate it if you're sensible. And I mean, I still think people are a little uncomfortable with travel because I haven't been on international flights that weren't packed in a while. The two flights I took were not full flights. It reminded me of flying in the early 90s. When the planes are like, you know, there's people on them, but they're not packed. And for a little while there, every single flight is just full, packed, every single one you take. So now it's almost like we've gone back to what it used to be like when you could still smoke on flights and stuff like that. Oh, my God. So is your son musical? He is, but he's either not accepting it or like <laughs> he is musical. He just isn't pursuing it yet, maybe because... His mother is also a musician. Both his grandfathers are musicians. I think he's just resisting. I think he feels expected to be, and that's probably why he's not. He's 14, but he will sit at the piano and pull something that's musically cohesive out of the ether, and which I couldn't do when I was young. So I don't know. Maybe he'll come around, but I just leave it up to him. 
I let him decide what he wants to do. I'm not going to put any pressure on him. It would be nice, but you got to want to do it. You know, I have some friends whose parents forced them to take piano lessons and very few of them ended up being professional musicians. So <laughs> you got to want to do it. You got to find it on your own. So I'll let him decide if that's what he wants or not. And if he doesn't, that's great too. I'm going to leave it all up to him. Well, that's probably pretty smart. So do you have another trip planned soon or are you going to be in Canada for a while? I'm looking into it right now. I think there's like a New Year's offer. There's a few things and I'm touring with Frontline Assembly again next year in May in America and August in Europe. And then I'm going to manage my solo stuff somewhere around there. And I have an album, a new Conjuring album coming out. I'm not sure when that's coming out, actually. The company's been sitting on it for whenever they set up the release the way they want. Some of the material I played on the live stream set I have coming, I think it's November 23rd on a new solo album. How do people get that? I have a Bandcamp page and just with my name, it'll be on there and Spotify and everywhere. That's R-H-Y-S-F-U-L-B-E-R on Bandcamp and Spotify. New album is called Brutal Nature. And it's a little more of a subtle record than I think what people will expect. There's down-tempo things on there. It's not all just banging techno songs. It's, it's actually quite subtle and atmospheric in places. It was all sort of pandemic made when I was still in Los Angeles when they shut everything down. And so I just made music. And that whole period, you know, we couldn't travel, we couldn't do anything. I just did so much music that it's still like, it's going to take a while to get it all out. That's like the most music I've made in a long time. There was really nothing else to do. And it came right from the heart too, when you're all alone. And Well, I mean, I was with my son. Oh, well, that's good. The reason we came back to Canada was because initially it was all online school. And if we could go somewhere where we don't have to do this, that would be great. So we came back up to British Columbia. And, you know, it's a small town, so things weren't as bad up here. And they had some protocol that the school stayed open. So that was the main reason we came up here. And now it's just we're staying, you know, everything worked out. So I can hardly wait to hear the new album. That's going to be awesome around Thanksgiving. I forgot the exact date. I'd have to look it up. Well, it's not like you're not busy and you're jet lagged. You just got back from Berlin. So I appreciate you doing this. It's very sweet of you to do this. The worst thing about jet lag is it's like narcolepsy. And then you fall asleep randomly really deep. And then you wake up and you don't know where you are. It's not really that bad. It's when I come back that it really hits me. (laughs) Yeah, coming back was rough. And, you know, the older you get, the rougher it gets. I don't know. Everything gets rougher when you get older, I tell you. No excuses. Keep traveling. Keep working because you're doing great work. It's so nice to talk to you. And I want to thank everybody at OWC for sponsoring this show because I do get to talk to wonderful, creative people and share that wealth with the world. And everybody, he's Reese Fulber. I'm Serena Catania, the host of OWC Radio. We've been talking about his amazing music. And remember what I tell you every show, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. And Reese, thank you for being on with us. So everybody go to Spotify or Bandcamp or just Google him and you'll find his new music around Thanksgiving. We'll start looking for it. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.